Sometimes, when I go out hiking in the Florida woods, I stumble upon something I didn't expect to find. My feet lead me forward, my eyes set on the distance, and I am determined to complete the trail and check it off my list. Whenever you're someone who tries to not rely too heavily on a map when you're exploring like myself, you don't realize where your path is headed, maybe until it's too late. That was precisely my situation when I drove headfirst into the Highlands Hammock State Park in Sebring, Florida. I was far from the part of Florida that I usually call home, miles east of my usual Gulf Coast favorites, and not terribly far from Lake Okeechobee. I was in Florida's Highlands County, a relative term, of course, because this part of the state is indeed of higher elevation than the rest, though not by much. I was here in the Highlands Hammock State Park because it was, in fact, one of the very first state parks in Florida. When I saw a sign denoting the boardwalk I was about to step on was nearly 80 years old, I thought nothing of it. I probably should have read a little more in depth because what I found about 10 minutes into the walk would have made a lot more sense. For about the first third of this path, I was on a two-railing wide boardwalk over a flooded cypress swamp. Then, it became a single railing path with the rail set low, lower than my own waist, with a very thin set of boards between posts set in the water. One side was totally open to the wetlands below. With every step, the boards creaked and groaned as the open-sided boardwalk led me deeper into the woods, the water just a few inches below the open pathway. A misstep would result in my foot slipping into the water. At times, the boards were at an angle, and I became entirely aware that my balance was crucial here. Dark shadows on the bottoms of the cypress trees denoted to me that the water had been much higher not long ago, almost so high that they may have been touching the bottom of the boards that I now traversed. Every few feet there would be a safe spot to stop and sit that had more surrounding railings, but then you'd have to return to the single railing path. I laughed, basically out of anxiety, the whole walk, amazed that I had found myself on a path with so much potential for danger. I was totally alone on a beautiful October morning in the middle of this swamp. The cypresses and the ferns loomed over. Along the path, old carvings shined from the woods, people placing their names and initials, almost like they were reaching out, announcing their presence, claiming the same victory over this unusual path. They had made it out, and I would too. To keep the tradition alive, I left my mark as well. Maybe when you're out there, you'll see it. I had conquered this path all the same, and returned to solid ground. The rest of the park had much to see, and my new hiking shoes were glad to carry me there. I roamed the hiking paths and passed a historically restored orange grove. My shoes stomped through the mud past the bikers and hikers that had also decided to step out on this beautiful Wednesday morning. My path led me to the Hammock Inn, a historic building that now functions as the park's camp store. An ancient turtle shell that had been excavated within the park was held within a glass case in the back of the shop alongside a taxidermized black bear and bobcat. In the back, cans of food and other camping supplies sat on the shelves for those planning to stay the night. In the freezer sat containers of fresh orange ice cream which I devoured outside next to some fantastic Halloween decorations. The woman running the shop showed me pictures of some alligator babies she saw on the boardwalk trail I had just returned from, and we commiserated about the necessity for fake fall leaves in Florida autumn. 
She also had the unfortunate job of informing me that the museum across the way was closed. The pandemic had decreased volunteer availability across the state, and museums like this one are only running on the weekend. That was alright. The park itself was a museum of sorts. I was standing within an artifact, walking across boards laid by the hands I was searching for, explored the hiking trails of an entire park that was part of a national legacy. See, this park, Highlands Hammock State Park, was built in some part by one of the most important environmental organizations in American history. They were called the Civilian Conservation Corps. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the conservation season, and this week we're discussing the Civilian Conservation Corps, how they led to state parks coming into Florida, and how the CCC could make its return in these difficult ecological times. My guest this week is Neil Marr. My name is Neil Marr. I'm a professor of history at uh, Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and the New Jersey Institute of Technology, where I teach what's called environmental history of the United States. Neil's first real work that he did in graduate school actually propelled him directly into writing about the CCC. Well, uh, I went to graduate school wanting to study environmental history, but my first sort of research paper in graduate school um, was um, about a, a small state park in the Hudson Valley of New York where I where I lived. I looked at that history and, and my advisor at the time was actually a, a, a New Deal, Great Depression New Deal scholar. Wow. So I, I wanted to look at that state park during that period because she was quite familiar with that period. And that's what got me hooked on you know, both environmental history, but also the Civilian Conservation Corps, because during the 1930s, the CCC basically built this park uh, from the ground up. So that, that turned into my, my master's thesis. You can go all over this country and find locations that share a similar origin story. All sorts of places, state parks, refuges, camping structures, everywhere were built by the CCC from the ground up. But what exactly is the CCC? Well, it was part of what is called the New Deal, one of, if not the most prominent policies in Franklin D. Roosevelt's presidency nearly a century ago. The Great Depression had swept into the country, leaving terrible scars across our economic and political and social landscapes. Something needed to be done, and FDR believed he had the plan. Well, Franklin Roosevelt, as soon as he becomes elected, even before he becomes elected, He's really aware, uh, obviously, of the economic crisis, right? It was no surprise when he became president, there was a 25% unemployment rate, you know, one in four Americans unemployed, uh, close to 10,000 banks had failed. So he was well aware of that economic problem. But Roosevelt also believed, and correctly, that there was also an environmental crisis going on. And in one of his first addresses to Congress, he says that, um, you know, the, new, the news we're getting from the Ohio and Mississippi rivers where there was massive flooding, to him suggested a, an environmental crisis. And he made the argument that we could solve both of these crises, one economic and the other environmental, 
through work programs that put young Americans to work conserving natural resources. One of the programs that did that was the Civilian Conservation Corps. So as he put it, the CCC could, quote, kill two birds with one stone. And what he meant by that was that we could solve the economic crisis and the environmental crisis by putting people to work conserving natural resources. America was indeed in the thick of many environmental disasters all at the same time. The Dust Bowl is one of the most famous. It was a drought that struck the prairies of our country throughout the 30s. The area most affected connected Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, and Colorado. It was just this big area where all of these states were being affected by this intense drought. It made the whole region hotter and drier and drastically affected the economy thanks to the impact that it had on agriculture. People living within the areas affected by the Dust Bowl were fleeing that area and trying to find safer spots. So it, it just had this massive ripple effect across the center of the country. At the same time, the rivers north of this area were rising. In 1937, the Ohio River rose so high that several states were met with sudden flood conditions. Couple that with the Great Depression, which began with the stock market crashing in 1929, the whole country was in a state of turmoil. We've talked a little bit about this, but Florida also faced the Great Depression right before the Great Depression started affecting the broader country. See, we had this land boom where land was being bought up for cheap, and all of these developments were happening across Florida, especially in South Florida. When that bubble burst, before the Great Depression actually started, Florida slipped into its own depression before it was affecting everyone nationally. So, the New Deal was supposed to have answers, and the CCC was one such solution. According to Neil, the CCC was precisely the kind of project you'd expect from Franklin Roosevelt. So, um, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, had a long history before becoming president of being involved with when he was state senator he was involved in doing work up in the adirondack forest preserve he brought a lot of that work with him um, to washington dc but even before that when he was taking over his family's estate in the hudson valley he encountered massive erosion problems soil erosion problems on that estate and he actually began planting trees close to twenty thousand trees a year so he had a long history of conservation. He also had a very long history of working with the Boy Scouts. So he was very involved in the Boy Scouts when he was governor of New York. He was the head scoutmaster at one point. Um, and he, he had a real belief in helping these young boys, many of whom lived in cities, by bringing them out into the countryside and, and showing these scouts how to um, camp and uh, live outdoors. He saw that as a way to rejuvenate these young boys. So for Roosevelt, the CCC was really a, a coming together of those conservation ideas and this idea of, in a sense, conserving America's youth, conserving these young boys from the Boy Scouts. So he, he brought them together. He, as he said, he wanted to you know conserve both the, the human resources that were in the program, but also the natural resources of the nation. Um, so it really stems back to Roosevelt's own past, and it enabled him to, as you said, look forward in a very, very um, proactive way to try to tackle the economic and environmental crisis of the Great Depression. You hear stories like this sometimes that kind of boggle your mind, all of these things that come together in the lifetime of one person, and the result of that is something that only maybe they could have conceived of. The CCC or the Triple C or the core, whichever you want to call it, is one such example of that. We are lucky 
that it even existed. Now, there is a museum dedicated to the CCC in Florida, and it is in the Highlands Hammock State Park, but as I mentioned, it was closed. But there was a lot of evidence of the handiwork of the Triple C around me. The wood laid in the general store that I had just bought this ice cream was put in place by the Triple C. Sure, they sold overly colorful t-shirts now and a bandana, which I purchased, but this had been here for almost a century now, and it was created by the Triple C. All of this area had been touched by them at one point. One of the clearest pieces of evidence of the presence of the core was not in those artifacts, however. It was in a statue built 60 years after the founding of the CCC. It is a towering figure, dark brown, absorbing the heat of the sun, watching over the road that brought guests into the park. It's of a man, shirtless, a wide-brimmed hat on his head and axe in his hand. He is literally standing on a pedestal, a light smile on his face. He is a representative of all of the CCC men, and none of them, really. He's not supposed to be one in particular. He is kind of a combination of them turned into an idol. He is not the only statue in this country. There are nearly 80 of these Triple C statues across the country, all very similar in design to one another. There are four in Florida, Highlands Hammock and Fort Clinch. There is also one in the Florida Caverns State Park, not far from Bellamy Bridge, which we discussed last week. And the fourth is in Oleno State Park, northwest of Gainesville. All four of those state parks were partially or completely built by the Triple C. These statues are beautiful and unique and quite fitting for the legacy of the CCC. But the men represented here were not heroes, really. Maybe they were, but in reality, they were just men. Sure, well, in the beginning, they had to, you know, get these young men to these sites. So what they did was they enrolled, they enrolled men all over the country. These young men had to be between the ages of 18 and 25. They had to be unmarried and unemployed, and their families had to be on relief rolls. The Department of Labor processed these young men. They then went to uh, usually a local army base where they went through some physicals and also got sort of in shape. And then they were shipped out to camps. Each camp had 200 men in them and they were scattered all across the country. Um, at first, there were no barracks in these camps. So the young men hiked into the national park or the state park or the national forest and they actually lived in tents and actually built the barracks and the mess hall for the camp that they would then inhabit wow um, later on when the camps were established they just went you know and, and went to the camps and their days were pretty intense they woke up um, and did calisthenics they had a big hearty breakfast and then they got in trucks and were driven to the work site and that work site could be an area they, that they were reforesting in the middle of a national forest it could be a campground that they were constructing in a state park, or it could be a farmer's fields in an agricultural area that they were helping to, for instance, contour plow to try to help erosion problems. They'd work all day. Often lunch was brought out to them in the middle of the day at the site, so they would work at the site. They would then continue working in the afternoon. They'd come back to camp around 4 o'clock, 
and they would um, have some free time to do sports or take classes. They took classes after work as well. Um, these classes were anything from vocational classes to reading and writing to science classes, actually. And then they would have dinner and often at night they'd have events like a movie or a dance or they could read in the library. And then they would hit the hay early because they had a lot of work to do the next day. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like for a lot of probably, I mean, it just sounds like for a young man in that era who had no other opportunities waiting for them, that this was like an ideal situation. I mean, you said relief roles. By relief roles, do you mean like their their family was on like welfare or situations like that, things like that at the time? Yeah, they, so their family, their their mother and father had to be unemployed, so they were, rece- they were receiving state aid. So yeah, it would be similar to like welfare today. So, um, and, and you're exactly, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, so all of these guys had to be coming from low income, like all of them had Absolutely. to be coming. Wow. Absolutely. They were all working class, uh, 50% from cities, 50% from rural areas. But what you said is really correct. I mean, these young boys, um, you know, probably were not going to college, right? So this was their first experience away from their families. It's their, many of them were sent all the way across the country, right? Far away from their families. And it was really their first experience, you know, on their own. And many of them look back on it really, really fondly. I've interviewed many of them. And they almost speak of it with, with real nostalgia. They, they speak of it as really shaping their lives in ways that was were very positive. Um, and there were some problems with the CCC, which we'll get to later, but they, for, for the enrollees, it was you know very positive experience. Part of what actually put me on to emailing Neil in the first place was connected to one of the last things he said. I read a book early this year called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. That book is a dense, detailed breakdown of countless examples of governmentally sanctioned racism in everything from housing to jobs to federal programs like the Triple C. It detailed how the government put in and supported systems that discriminated or flat out prevented black Americans from being given equal opportunity in our country for decade upon decade. The Civilian Conservation Corps was not exempt from that historical moment. Well, that was part of my question was the makeup of the people I, I read were there was people from all different backgrounds as well. There were people coming from native reservations. There were there were laborers. There were uh, veterans coming and working in here. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see this sort of to see to know that there are these problems but to see that there is sort of a, not to say melting pot, but there is a blend of, of, of backgrounds in this organization. Like the, the people that were coming to it were, were of a variety of people. And, and that's just very interesting at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to, we have to pick, unpack that a little bit, what you said, because there, some people could, could join that melting pot who joined the CCC, but others couldn't. So let me just back up for just a second. Please. So, Yeah, so first of all, um, African-Americans were in segregated camps. So in the beginning, some camps were um, mixed, uh, but African-Americans lived in separate barracks or in separate areas of barracks. Later on, the camps became segregated. So there was an African-American CCC, basically. It was run, uh, surprisingly or not, by um, white military officers. So it was very difficult for African-American enrollees to move up the ranks, so to speak. 
there was there were Native Americans in the CCC, but they were in an entirely separate program. It was the Indian Conservation Corps, wow. and they um, were not in camps. They worked from home and traveled to the work site every day. Uh, they worked primarily on Indian reservations, um, and some of those projects were very good for the reservations, and some of them were geared more towards increasing tourism in these regions. Um, so that was a, a very separate program and and not equal. Um, and then, of course, women you know were not allowed to join the CCC either. But this issue of a melting pot is really interesting because. Um, that is one of the things that the Corps promoted during the 1930s, that it was a, a civic melting pot. And what it, what it did through its massive publicity office, which included full-length feature films, advertisements, press releases, you know, newsreels at movie theaters before the main show, what it promoted was that you had all these sort of hyphenated Americans Polish Americans, German Americans, Irish Americans, Italian Americans coming into the core and through hard work, hard manual labor in American nature, out in good old woods and the forests of America, these hyphenated Americans became full-blooded American men. So Italian Americans became American men, um, you know, from boys to men. And, and the interesting thing was that many of the young boys accepted this you know trope in a way um but there were others who were excluded from that americanization process including those african americans who really couldn't you know do that and then of course the native americans as well so it was a civic melting pot for some but not for everybody yeah it's so disappointing to know that like this opportunity is sitting right there for actual an actual sort of blending of the populace like an actual chance to have people meeting with people that they wouldn't normally see in their communities and it's just squandered. Neil makes an excellent point after this as well. Roosevelt was trying to get his new deal off the ground and perhaps he wanted to integrate the camps, but many, many politicians were still deeply in favor of segregation, so the status quo had to be maintained in order for the new deal to get its feet on the ground. That doesn't excuse it. It's maybe just an explanation. It was a big deal that these men were working together at all. There was genuinely a significant blend of the people who were working on these projects. These men were part of insulated communities and now they were getting to meet new people, but it could have been so much more. This flaw in their history does not change the fact that the Civilian Conservation Corps left an incredible mark on the country. So in the beginning, it was really thought of as a, a tree planting organization, a tree planting program. Um, so it began to, to do that early on, and it planted close to 3 billion trees, more trees planted in the most trees planted in, in any period of U.S. history. One half the trees planted in the United States up to that time, and 12 trees for every Depression-era American. So an enormous number of trees wow. planted. But then... When the Dust Bowl hit in 1934, the Corps really expanded its work into soil conservation. Wow. So Roosevelt greatly increased the number of camps out in the, the Dust Bowl, um, and they went out there and tried to help farmers um, you know, contour, plow their fields, and plant drought-resistant crops um, to try to halt soil erosion and conserve water. And then in the late 1930s, it shifted again where the, when the Corps started to take on a lot of park recreational development work. 
So it, it basically built 800 new state parks from the ground up, eight of which were in the state of Florida. It basically developed the infrastructure of every national park in the country and, you know, began to build hiking trails and campgrounds and visitor centers through even municipal parks in the country as well. So those were the three areas that they did. But the, and there were but there were some ecological problems that went on too. Some great work was done, amazing work, but there were some ecological missteps as well. What what are those? What 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 did they do wrong? Well, we have to understand that the science of ecology in the 1930s was in its infancy. Sure. There were very few very few academics, very few scientists who were studying ecology. So we didn't know what we know now. So, for instance, mosquitoes were a big problem. They were not only a, a nuisance, but also, you know, spread diseases. So all along the eastern seaboard, CCC camps drained swamps for mosquito control. Oh. But as we know, that decreases biodiversity and habitat for migrating birds. So it's not a, not a good thing. Um, the Corps built a lot of fire breaks and hiking trails and motor roads through national parks and national forests to try to control fire. And that broke up wilderness areas and fragmented wilderness. Um, and then even their tree planting, they, they tended to plant single species of trees in straight rows. And it's just, you know, it's not a natural way of doing it. It increases the chance of uh, pest infestations and diseases. You know, th there were some problems, uh, but ecologists did push back. They began to criticize the CCC uh, during this period, and the Corps reacted and tried to change some of its programs. So in a way, it helped to, to, to raise awareness about ecological balance um, during the late 1930s. Not only was the CCC a unique organization that employed young men who needed the work, not only did it allow conservation to grow across America, but it also taught us what did and didn't work in the process of preserving land. It's no wonder that Aldo Leopold, during his time, did actually do some work with the CCC, but we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. The things that the Triple C learned was going to become a necessary piece of wisdom for us, especially as national parks became more and more of interest across the country. In fact, by the 1930s, there were already nearly 20 national parks, including Yellowstone and Yosemite. The Grand Canyon, Crater Lake, and Zion, they all existed as well, some of the originals. The country was looking for more locations to establish national parks, including here in Florida. Now, we know that the Everglades National Park would be the first in Florida, and it was only a few years away, but they didn't know that yet. There was plenty of spots that could have been a national park, and one town in particular was advocating for their land to become one. Locals in Sebring, Florida, believed that they had just the right spot for the next national park, right here in the heart of Florida. The highlands, they believed, deserved that recognition. On top of that, farms in the area were beginning to encroach on the hammock's land, and if they didn't act quickly, it could be bought out and its ecological prominence would be wiped out. A man named Dr. F.H. Newell from the Department of the Interior, who runs the national parks, published a letter in the Sebring newspaper saying, quote, It is my belief that you should make special efforts to see to it that this beauty spot is preserved and made known to your winter visitors as well as the citizens of your state. End quote. Soon after that was published, a woman named Margaret Shippen Roebling put up tens of thousands of dollars to start purchasing the land in this area. Locals, despite the economic nightmare they were in the midst of, put up a few thousand of their own. 
It was the early 30s, and expendable cash like this was not very common, but it just goes to show how much the people of this town cared about this land. The people of Sebring were committed to saving the Highlands, but their leader died in the heart of the process. Mrs. Roebling passed away suddenly. Her husband, John, went on to continue her work. With all the money raised, they were able to successfully secure this land, and the Highlands hammock was theirs. It opened in 1931, and then the Triple C came to town. With the Triple C joining the cause, new trails were laid, new buildings were constructed, and a botanical garden was being established on the land. The CCC turned this protected land into a park. They built the hammock inn where I ate my orange juice, they laid the trails where I broke in my brand new hiking shoes, and they just made this place its own little pocket of Highland County glory. This place has their fingerprints all over it. And as I mentioned earlier, Highlands Hammock is not the only state park that the Civilian Conservation Corps helped establish. It basically helped to create the state park system in Florida. Wow. So there were eight state parks that were developed from the, the ground up in Florida, and I'm going to list them here, and I might say them incorrectly, but I want to give a shout out to these great treasures that the state of Florida has. We have Florida Caverns, Fort Clinch, Goldhead Branch, Highland Hammock, Hillsborough River, which I've been to because uh, my wife is from around there, um, the Mayaka River, Olino, and Torreya. Um, they were all built by the CCC from the ground up. The Corps also helped build infrastructure in other state parks. That list is just astounding, by the way, because of how varied it is. They're not in one specific area or one specific ecosystem. They're all over the state, from the Panhandle all the way down east and west coasts, and some right smack dab in the middle, like Kylan's Hammock. Those were the first state parks in Florida, and the Civilian Conservation Corps led them into existence. I mean, one, one, one thing I, I read suggested that the, the, the eight parks were created sort of in eight different regions of yeah. Florida. I'm yeah. sure if that's true. And, and what the court did in those parks, as it did throughout the entire country, was when it built infrastructure like campgrounds or bridges, like you said, or hiking trails or stone steps, it did, it, it did so with local materials. The idea was to design these parks and develop them to blend into the local landscape. And that's probably why if you go to all those state parks in Florida, you're going to see slightly different types of architecture and slightly different types of materials used in those buildings because the core had landscape architects and architects that it hired to design structures and infrastructure that blended in, used local resources. So it's really interesting when you're going and, and visiting those parks and walking through them to look at how well those old structures really do blend in. That's the whole point is that, that you know, the bridge that you're crossing both is a functional bridge, but also tends to not remove you dramatically from that landscape that you're trying to enjoy. Cypress logs make up these structures to reflect the cypress forests all around. That is just one example of how these parks were made by Floridians using Floridian material in Florida. It wasn't just the parks, by the way. The Civilian Conservation Corps were there when the people of South Florida needed them as well. And then the, the great hurricane, the, 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 the hurricane of 1935, which decimated the Florida Keys, 
there was a CCC camp in Miami that went down after to help with the rescue efforts and some of the cleanup down there. Oh, wow. You know, a lot of great work done in parks. Um, if I remember correctly, the CCC also did some work in the Everglades. There were over 50,000 enrollees stationed in Florida, and I think about 31 camps spread throughout the state as well. 50,000 people. That's how many Floridians were joined up in the Civilian Conservation Corps. There really has never been a system like that. Our state parks, thanks to those brave Floridians, have become an essential part of our identity. We've been named the nation's best state park system, and anyone who visits can see why. Those first eight parks really were a blueprint, the creation of a tradition for our state, of unique, complete, exemplary state parks. I visit them constantly, and I'm always amazed at how fortunate we are that we have what we have, and we can thank the Civilian Conservation Corps for starting us on that path. But they weren't meant to last, of course. What was the thing that sort of made the CCC eventually shut its doors? Is it only nine years? Is that correct? Yeah, only wow. nine years, um, and still accomplished you know, so much. The, the, the amount of, of acreage that the CCC transformed through its labor is larger than the state of California. Wow. So it's a huge effort in nine years. Um, but what, what, what brought it to its conclusion was World War, World War II. So as we began to enter World War II, the Corps, at first, they tried to adjust the work of the Corps to help in military preparedness. So, for instance, the camps out on the West Coast in the, the Pacific Northwest, they were stationed to try to watch for fires that the government believed you know the japanese might try to start in the forests of the pacific northwest um but very quickly you know the country realized that we needed these young men not to be out in the forests stopping forest fires but to be at the front uh fighting the war so close to 80 percent more than 80 percent of the young men who had been in the ccc actually went and enrolled in the military it was an easy transition because the ccc camps were run by the u.s military the work that they did when they left the camps was run by the Department of Interior and Agriculture. But these young men all had um, experience under military rule in these camps. And many of them um, transitioned very easily into the military during the war. Man. So that's what happened. And then they, cl they, they closed the, the, the program um, in 1942 um, as the war kicked in. And since then, there have been calls to bring it back. Nine years. I think that's why those statues stand all over the country and here in Florida of those men with the axes in their hands. They were only around for nine years. They did so much in so little time, and unfortunately, we hardly find time to remember their work. I can't imagine Florida without our parks, without our trails, without these structures that connect us to the nature around us. And for what the Civilian Conservation Corps did for the country at the time in employing out-of-work individuals in a tough economic crisis, in conserving land at a time when the environment needed us most, we can learn a lot. We can take a lot of their interests into our life today. Like Neil said, some folks want the Triple C to make its return. So what, what space could the CCC have in today's world? Right. I mean, you know, so in Biden's um, 
not his infrastructure bill, but his other climate change um, executive order, he has one paragraph on the creation of a, a new and improved CCC, which he's calling a Civilian Climate Corps. Conservation changed to climate for obvious reasons. Well, but we have to improve on the CCC's record. And that would, first of all, make it open to all people, regardless of, of age, gender, any sort of disabilities, um, and make it much more uh, accessible to the general public. And secondly, along with conserving natural resources, which are very, very useful, we need to also tackle a whole host of, um, I think, more urban problems, such as toxic waste sites, um, urban air pollution, uh, drinking water issues. Those, those types of more urban-centered problems were really ignored by the original CCC back in the 1930s. Um, and, and most importantly, we, a new CCC would have to tackle issues around climate change. And this is the most pressing issue of our generation. Um, and we have to help communities figure out how to adapt to climate change and become more resilient, um, but also undertake projects that could help to decrease our use of fossil fuels. So for instance, having enrollees work on solar farms in the, um, the American Southwest, sure. perhaps putting in windmill facilities in the old Dust Bowl, right, where that wind could power energy, you know, the whole clean, and then all the while training these young people in the emerging green energy economy, which I think could be very useful for them down the road. But the overall issue is that, it, is that it, a new CCC would have to really embrace more of an environmental justice sort of approach and really be driven by the needs of local communities rather than being dictated from Washington, D.C. by people like Franklin Roosevelt or, or, or President Biden. It would have to really be a, a collaboration with local communities and, and figure out what they need and let them have a say in what, what work is being done. I mean, it also matches the time, you know, we're, we're having a similar, not a similar, but we are having an economic crisis right now with jobs coming out of the yes. pandemic. We are having obviously a, a climate change issue that is un unimaginable in the era of FDR. So it, it seems like a perfect pairing of those ideas the same way it feels like it was back in the era of FDR. I agree. And I also think that young people are ready. Um, I don't think that young people today, at least my students, they don't want to join a program that's going to melt them into some sort of American civic culture. What they want, though, is they want to connect to American culture. They want to feel like they're doing something for the country, but they also want to maintain their identity. And I think that's the fine line that a new CCC would have to walk. It would have to allow these young people to come in and feel really, really good and really, really connected to each other and their country about the work that they're doing regarding climate change, but also allow them to maintain their identities as whatever they are, right? Because young people today really live their identities. So if they if they strongly identify as a, an African-American, they want to be able to maintain that. If they really identify as a an LGBTQ person, then they want to be able to maintain that, um, but also feel a connection to their country and each other. So I think that's the most important thing is to create a, a, a program that will allow that individuality, but 
still foster a connection to a shared civic culture that, that is so important today and I think somewhat lacking today. We are facing a myriad of problems as a country, much different than the ones that the Triple C faced nearly a century ago. And we are a much different populace than we were at that time. Florida could really use a new band of the Civilian Conservation Corps, folks hoping to protect our coastlines and our wetlands, to advocate for our animals and to protect our trees and flowers. We need people like you and me, people who are connected to our communities, people who want to bring themselves to this work, people who want to see their own world reflected in the conservation and climate work being done. That is no small feat, but I think that young people today have the energy for it, the verve for it. If we, the people of Florida, can accomplish half of what the Civilian Conservation Corps of Florida accomplished before us, just think of the kind of state we will leave for the Floridians of a century from now. Maybe they'll put statues up of us, but more importantly, maybe they will walk the path that we laid out for them and enjoy the land that we valued enough to ensure that it would still be around for them to enjoy. That is what the Civilian Conservation Corps was all about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some incredible stories waiting for you if you're looking for a good place to jump in. You don't need to go back to the first episode. That was a long time ago. I have written about one of these other state parks as well. If you would like to hear more about it, I wrote about it in the episode called The Shape of Florida, where I visited Fort Clinch State Park, another one of the first eight state parks. So there's still six that I haven't gotten to go to, and you will be sure that you'll hear about the Civilian Conservation Corps again when I go to those state parks very soon. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, head to our website, wfmpod.com. There are transcripts from the past couple of seasons, and I am currently working on getting last season and this season fully updated with transcripts, additional photos, and ways to listen on the website. If you prefer reading, or if you know someone who can only read the episodes, there are new ways for you to enjoy the episodes there. So go check out wfmpod.com. I will be updating those by the end of this year. You can pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. I'd like to make a request to you. If you want some more Wait 5 Minutes stickers, and I hope you do, I'd like to know what you would like to see, because we're hoping to make some more in the new year. If there's something you want on a sticker to represent your love of this show or your love of this state, send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Speaking of which, if you want to follow the show on social media, we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFM. 
pod. I frequently post pictures there, and you'll see some interactions with guests on the show who you can follow and read more of their work as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It means a lot to me to know what you like about this show. I'd like to give a very special thank you as well to Neil Marr, who took the time to talk to me about the Civilian Conservation Corps. He wrote a book about them that you have to check out, and another as well. I'll let him tell you about them. I'd love them to check out my book, um, which is called Nature's New Deal. Um, the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Roots of the Environmental Movement, which was published by Oxford University Press. All right. And then also, if they want to check out my, my second book called Apollo in the Age of Aquarius, which is about the space race in the 1960s, that would be cool, too. Next week, we will be back with a brand new episode in this conservation season. I am so thrilled for you to hear the things that are coming down the line. There are some... Some big episodes, let's say. <laughs> Some that I am very, very excited about. So stay tuned in for things on the horizon. And there will be some bonus episodes very soon. So I will see you next Monday with a brand new conservation tale. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Look into getting your vaccination to support those around you. And if it's time to get your booster shot, look into what you need to do next. And of course drink more water. Happy November. I certainly hope the weather is cooling off where you are. See you soon. <laughs>